Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Um, no, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 John um, chapter 2. Uh, we're walking through 1 John verse by verse. And this is something that we started uh, a couple of years ago. We started walking through books of the Bible verse by verse. And it's, I found it to be so healthy, so helpful. And just, um, it, we don't do it all the time, but it's been um, good for me as a, as a preacher and as a pastor to not just cherry pick my favorite verses, right? And just preach on those or like, uh, I don't know, like you're driving to church and you're like, oh Lord, what should I preach on today? And it's the same thing you've preached on for the past 30 years. Um, and oh, the Lord spoke to me and it's like, eh, I don't know. So instead, what's, what's cool about going verse by verse through the Bible is this is the word of God. And we do have to encounter some sometimes uncomfortable passages that we otherwise maybe would skip over. And so instead, I felt a burden from the Lord just to stay true to scripture verse by verse to reveal what he's saying to the church and then to expound on that so that's what we're going to do today first john chapter 2 verse 9 um, through 11 is where we're going to uh, be hanging out and john says this and by the way john is the oldest living apostle at this time he is the elder statesman of the church and he's writing to the church as a whole. This letter is to be passed from church to church to church to church. He is, he's, he's the authority, if you will, uh, the, the, the authority over the entire church at that time. And the church had been expanding. This is some 60, 70 years after Pentecost. The church had been growing. Things had been happening. And John's getting ready to die, honestly. He's old. Uh, he's, he's, he's been here for a long time. Every other um, disciple at this time has been martyred, has been killed for their faith. And John is trying to make sure that the church is in a good place. And so this is, this is why he's so direct and he's so powerful. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Did you notice that? There's nothing in them to make them stumble. When you have love for your brother and sister, there's nothing in you to make you stumble. We often think we are tripping over things outside of us, but John is recognizing the fact that most of the stuff we really trip over is inside of us. All right, so today's sermon is how, how, how to not trip over yourself. All right, that's what this is. Uh, and then going on to verse 11, but anyone who hates a brother or a sister is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So um, this is one of those passages which uh, I, I, I touched on a couple of weeks ago. It's a thermometer passage. So those of you that were with us a couple of weeks ago, you know what I mean by that, but let me catch you up to speed if you weren't here. A thermometer is something which it just reflects to you reality. So in your house, uh, if you have central air or central heating, um, there are two basic components to that central heating system and one, or, or cooling system. One is uh, a thermostat. A thermostat is the way that you turn up or turn down the, the, the temperature in your home. It's how you control the temperature. It's how you influence the temperature. It's a thermostat. The other is a thermometer. And a thermometer doesn't control anything. It just, it just reflects to you what actually is. And it's, and it's really helpful. I think we're, we get more fired up about thermostat passages, you know, passages that tell us how to turn up the heat or turn up the, the, the level of God in our life. 
and we don't really get that excited about thermometer passages because well a thermometer is neither positive nor negative it's not it's not a happy thing it's not a sad thing it just is so if you're feeling a little funny and you stick a thermometer under your tongue and you hold it under there it's not going to tell you how to get better it's not even going to tell you if you are in fact sick it will just read to you the temperature of your body and then you can determine if that's a healthy temperature or not and what's great about this passage and other passages like it actually there's seven times in the book of first john that john has thermometer passages he he, he comes across this phrase and if you've been with us now uh, you've probably come to recognize it if anyone if you want to go back to verse 9 anyone who claims to be right and john says that seven different times and that's why I, john is my favorite biblical writer because he, he 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 sees things from a higher perspective and then he pulls things together and so the number seven in numerology is a number of completeness and that's a that's a common theme for john in the book of revelation uh in first john in john's gospel uh you know there there but here there are seven times that john says if anyone claims something but does something then they're lying or they're not this it's there's seven different thermometer passages the first one is in chapter one which we've already covered he said anyone who claims to have fellowship with God but does not walk in the light is a liar <laughs> so you it's the same kind of thing now 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 fellowship with God is 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 the thing that they want but they're claiming to have fellowship with God but they're not walking in the light therefore they're a liar they're walking in darkness and that's a really good thermometer by the way um, it's good to face absolute truth sometimes because truth is not relative you don't have your truth and I have my truth I mean you can have your truth but your truth can be wrong there there are things which are absolute um, and that's not mean to say something is is absolute it's just accurate so like for instance um, I like to play the piano and I've been playing since I was six years old, and one of the very first thing I ever learned was a C chord, a C major chord to be exact. And so C major, I don't know if you guys can hear that, but C major, is, it, it's comprised of C, E, and G. Now that's, that's the major one progression. But anyway, the C major chord sounds like that. And, 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 and at six years old, I'll, I'll come and my fingers weren't quite used to bending like that, and so I would try to, and it would sound something more like that. And my teacher would say, well, that's not a C major chord right it's lovely and you're a good person but that's not a C major chord <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and and it's true it's not that she's being mean she's just being specific because if you want to be able if you want to have fellowship with God you need to be specific you cannot have fellowship with God and walk in darkness at the same time walking in darkness is sin darkness is moral uh, moral impurity or moral darkness therefore if anyone claims to have fellowship with God or have a relationship with God and yet they are not living in moral purity they're lying and so it's good sometimes to come across that because I think we can see our relationship with God is very um, subjective and it's really helpful actually to have an objective point of view that can come in and say no no this is what a C major chord is and honestly, like I think, like look, well, like I said, I believe in being transparent. I believe in being open. And Ro and I, my wife and I, have always tried to live that and model that here at the church. And so we model that in the church's finances. We model that in the in, in every area of the church. Uh, we attempt to be the same people here that we are at home, and the same people at home that we are at the restaurant, and the same people at the restaurant that we are at Walmart, because we intend to be transparent. And so, and so, if we're going to be transparent, honestly, I think some 
Christians really need to be honest about the fact that they're not walking in the light. And that's not condemnation. That's not saying that there's no hope for them. But if you can't actually read a thermometer, then you never really know if you're healthy or unhealthy. And so there's some Christians that the most honest thing they could do is say, I'm not a Christian. I believe God exists, but demons do that too. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I like to go to church occasionally. I I feel goosebumps sometimes when I hear certain Christian music, but I myself, according to John, am not in relationship with God. Because according to John, if I had a relationship with God, I would walk in the light. And just simply be honest about that. And maybe one day I'll get there, but I'm not there right now. And the truth is, hypocrisy is so common that it messes us up. Because we'll read the thermometer, we'll be like, I don't like that thermometer. That can't be right. I know I'm feeling great. Everything's fine. It's like the Friends episode, right? When, when, when she's like, I feel good. I feel wonderful. I'm not sick at all. I don't know if you remember that, the Vaseline. Anyway, I remember that. It was pretty funny. Uh, you have to check it out sometime. But no, we, like, we, like, we'll, we'll look at the thermometer and we'll just be like, no, 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 that's not me. I feel fine. And what happens is then the world looks at us and they're like, well, he says he's a Christian, but he's walking exactly the same way I'm walking. Pretty sure I don't need this Christian junk. Pretty sure I don't need a little extra condemnation in my life. And then the people who are, who are I feel fine, I feel fine. But the truth is they don't feel fine. And they begin to think that Christianity is condemnation. They begin to think that Christianity is faking it until you're making it. They begin to believe this lie that Christianity is like, well, I just have to, I just have to get, I just have to keep trying. No, man. If you have fellowship with God, you walk in the light. And if you're not walking in the light, you don't have fellowship with God. Therefore, get fellowship with God and you will start to walk in the light. Somebody's been messing with the, therm- the thermostat in here. I don't know, AC's on, people putting their coats on, Rose putting her coat on. I'm actually feeling somewhat cold, and that's usually not a good sign. <laughs> the pregnant lady feels great. That's lovely. That's wonderful. We're so happy for you. Uh, that's, that's great. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's, it, it, this is a thermometer passage. But now John's taken a little further, because before he said, if we have fellowship with God, then we walk in the light. Now he's saying, if we say we're walking in the light, It's a progression of what he's been talking about because there are many Christians that then say, okay, I'm going to walk in the light. I'm going to have fellowship with God. And they begin doing that. They begin getting sin out of their life. They begin laying down darkness. That's what it means to walk in the light. It's a step away from darkness. And that's wonderful. But now he says there's, there's another issue that can creep up as you're so obsessed with laying down darkness. And here it is. He says, well, look, we know we're walking in the light if we love one another. If we claim to walk in the light, but hate our brother or sister. And by the way, the, the word, it, technically the word is, is brother. This is the NIV version. They, they insert sister in there because the word for brother is, is intended to mean Christian brothers or people of the family of God. Um, now, of course, love, according to Jesus, is not limited to people in the family of God. Uh, Jesus looked at people and he says, you've heard, it, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. That's Matthew 5. Now, the Bible didn't say love your friends and hate your enemies. That was just a common saying, which, by the way, 2,000 years later, it's still a common saying. My toxic trait is I do stuff for people. They wouldn't do anything for me. Kind of like your enemies, maybe? Possibly? You, you, oh, you love your enemies? Is this a problem? Yeah, it's a problem 
in, in modern society. In, 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 uh, on Facebook memes, it's real, apparently it's really bad to do things for people that wouldn't do stuff for you. It's really bad to waste your life on people. Nobody told Jesus this, but it's really bad, apparently, to lay down your life for other people, to, what is it, shrink yourself. Like, we just celebrated in December, I don't know if you remember, but a holiday where somebody shrunk himself, who was at the highest point of glory and came down to the lowest point of humility. But you wouldn't want to do that. No, you don't want to do You want to be all you can be, of course. Reach your potential. Don't let anybody hold you back. And if these statements sound familiar, it's because the same spirit, the same snake that was whispering to people in Jesus' day is whispering to people in our day. And he says, don't let anything hold you back. Do what thou wilt was the more obvious one. You know, just, just pursue yourself. Be your full self. Don't ever limit yourself to help somebody. Don't ever lower yourself to serve somebody. Don't let people slow you down who have different visions and different speeds than you. My goodness, you just go all out for you and you figure out you and you do you. <laughs> Boo. I wasn't going to say that because I'm a male and I don't want to turn in my card. <laughs> so anyway, you know, but this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a Luciferian idea. This is a satanic idea. This is a value system, actually, in the book of Satan. Like, this is a very strong value system on, the, on darkness. And yet Jesus comes in, and he shrinks himself. He makes himself nothing in order to serve us, in order to wash our feet, in order to eventually die for people who would never turn to him, in order to waste his blood on ungrateful, unrepentant people like you and me. Like, he just, he just gives himself. As if God so loved the world. This is what love is, though, to sacrifice yourself for somebody else. And John says, look, if we claim to walk in the light, which is God, God is light. If we claim to be walking with him, and yet we hate our brother or sister, then we're not actually walking in the light. And so I just want to share with you a couple of ways um, that we can stumble, that we can trip over ourselves. Primarily that we can hate our brothers and sisters. Now, I know hate is a strong word, but actually love is a strong word too. We throw both of those words in English. We throw them both around a lot. Um, I think they've kind of drained, we drain the meaning out of them. You know, like um, I love ice cream and I love my wife differently. <laughs> but we just understand that in our culture. So it's hard when we come to scripture and it's like, oh, well, I I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I love people in general. I feel a certain kind of way toward them. That's positive, generally speaking. And we can imagine that that's love. Also, hate is interesting. We hate a lot of things. You know, uh, I hate vegetables. And, and, and I hate um, child, trafficker, tra child trafficking, but not in the same way. I'll still eat vegetables because I need to have some form of vitamins in my life. Um, but but I, I will happily work against all child trafficking. I'll happily do whatever I can to shut that stuff down. And so we throw around the word hate a lot, and it's kind of drained of, of the meaning. And what's interesting is here in this passage, hate can mean to have disgust for. It can mean to have disdain for, to look down on as, as less than. So, uh, hey, uh, all you racist out there, this is a good message for you. You cannot look down on somebody uh, as less than you and 
be a follower of Jesus at the same time. All right. Well, anyway, uh, this side, maybe I'll talk to this side. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just true. You, you cannot have disdain for people. You say, well, I, I don't have disdain for a lot of people. Or do you have disdain for anyone? Like th this present or the last one? Let's just go there. Do you have disdain for anyone? If you have disdain for anyone in your heart, then you can't, then you're not, you're not walking in the light. This is a thermometer. Once again, it's not to heap, uh, you know, condemnation on you, make you feel like you'll never get there, but you're just not there now. You're not literally walking in the light if you have disdain for somebody. If you have a, if you feel like someone is less than you in some, in some way, whether it's because of the color of their skin or because of the religion that they adhere to or because for any other reason. And so any hatred toward brothers and sisters is wrong, but also this word can mean um, to overlook. For instance, in, I think it's Luke chapter 9, Jesus uses this same word. He says, if anyone wants to come after me and follow me, he must hate his mother and father. He must hate his wife, hate his children, even his own life, Jesus says, in order to follow me. Now, wait, wait, wait a minute. In Luke 9, Jesus says, if we're going to follow him, we have to hate everybody. And then in 1 John, if we hate people, we're not actually following him. I can see why it's a little confusing. Let's get the English language, because actually what he's saying is, if, if anyone wants to follow me, he must be willing and able to overlook these people, these other loyalties, these other... Notice all of the, all of the people he mentioned, they weren't friends, co-workers, or anything like that. They were all covenant-type people. You have a, there's, there's, there's a covenant between uh, a father and son. There's a covenant between husband and wife. There's a covenant between brother and sister. There's a blood covenant. And so they're all covenant people, people who would normally pull your loyalties to themselves. And so what he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to overlook those people, look past them, and keep your eyes focused on me. So, so, so in, 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 in the very best marriages, it, it's tempting, like if, if Jesus is the pulpit and your wife is, is here, it's tempting to focus your energy on her. Right, babe. I'm always, I'm always just, I'm always just pulled toward that. Always. That's, that's my, that's my whole thing. Um, but for some people, it's, <laughs> it's, some of us are too spiritual for that. But uh, for other people, but no, like, it, what, what, like, what, a wife, husband, whatever, uh, children. My goodness, the amount of parents that have told me, oh, it's all about the kids. I'm, I'm, you know, the kids are the are the number one priority in my life. <laughs> no wonder they are crazy <laughs> because they're not made to be the number one priority in your life it's too much pressure on them they're not supposed to be choosing where you go out to eat and what dishes you you use and and you know at what time they go to bed like they're not in charge of the universe they're too little for that that much pressure on them puts them at the center of the universe and ultimately if you look at veruca from 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 willy wonka factory it doesn't end too well i want it all I want it now. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't work well. Because kids get in the middle, they get they, they and, and parents are serving them, and it destroys them. It'll destroy your spouse to for her to be the center of your world. It'll destroy your spouse for him to be your source of trust and your source of strength. We're not made for you to solely lean on us. 
That's why in a in, that's why in a biblical wedding you have the pastor and the Bible here, and you have a husband and a wife here because something's got to be in between the husband and the wife, and it is God. Like the idea is that 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 God is supposed to be at the center of a marriage, and when God is at the center of a marriage, then I'm overlooking my wife in order to focus on Jesus. And the crazy, the wonderful thing about Jesus is when you overlook people to focus on Him and you start focusing on him, you'll notice that he is looking at people. And so when, when, when you choose to idolize people, you will overlook others. You'll overlook, if, if, if your children are your priority, you will overlook your spouse for your children. And you'll sacrifice your marriage for the preferences of your kids. If you overlook, if, 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 you, if, you, if, you're, if your wife or if your husband is at the center of your universe, then you'll overlook your, 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 your family and you'll overlook your kids and you'll overlook uh, your ministry and you'll overlook other things in order to serve her and make sure she's happy because that, that old saying, happy wife, happy life. It's not true. <laughs> all right, it's all quiet now. All the, all the women are like, oh, no, we need to have a talk with Pastor Harry after this because I don't know where he's going with this, but this doesn't seem very, very helpful for me. I pretty much had convinced him that if I was happy, things were going to be good around here. And um, yeah, no, this is a thermometer. Look, let me just check your temperature. Because people who, <laughs> what? Happy spouse, happy house. Uh, yeah, see, th yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's not true. Some of the, some, some of the people who, who aim to make their spouse happy never can do it. And they end up falling short. And after 15 years, they end up calling it quits because they've tried everything that they've known to do, and it's just not making them happy. You weren't intended to be the source of happiness for your spouse. <laughs> Jesus is the only one. So uh, instead of happy wife, ha let's do happy Christ, happy life. Like, let's, 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 let's go with that. When you, when you walk in the light, that's a happy life. That rhymes, maybe, maybe that's a... Uh, it, when, and when both spouses, and the beauty of it is, and, 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 and I think those sayings come from the fact that when we are actually walking in the light with Christ, then we are actually both happy. And he fulfills us, and he shows us how to serve each other. And as we serve each other, then we are happy. But if we idolize each other. It's, it's, it's just, it's a difference of motivation. It's a difference of priority. It's a difference of focus. And so, and so to be truly, have a truly happy marriage, Jesus is in the middle of it, and he is the only one who is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor and all devotion. And then after him, my wife, and then after her, my kids, and then after them, my church. Because if we, if we start mixing these things up, it doesn't, it never leads to what we want. And so I would say that one way, one way that, that, that we hate each other is we idolize each other. We put people on pedestals and we ask them to give us what they don't have. We ask them to give us value. We ask them to show us worth. We ask them to fulfill us. And then after 20 years or whatever, I'm just, I'm just not fulfilled in this marriage anymore. I'm just not fulfilled. He's not meeting my needs. <laughs> and, or after three years, maybe. I don't know. But like, at some point, you figure out this human is not what I need. And that's okay. 
Because this human wasn't intended. When I said I do to this human, I was not shackling them up with making sure that I was happy for the rest of my life. It was not a contract that they had to now make me happy forever. But no, I found happiness in Jesus, in walking in the light. And when I walk in the light, I can release people from this pedestal I've placed them on. I can release pastors from having to always do the right thing. Come on, somebody. I can release my kids from having to be perfectly behaved. I can release my employer for having to, have, having to prescribe a great mission for my, you know, or give me fulfillment. I can, I, I can release people to be people because God is now God in my life. And I'm walking with him. He is fulfilling me. He is telling me my value. He's giving me my direction. He's giving me my happiness. And then all these people that come around, actually, I'm free to love them. I'm free to serve them. Because I don't need anything from my wife. I'm happy to give something to her. And if both people come into a marriage happy to give something to each other, that's that's where the happy spouse, happy house thing comes from. Because, because, because it's true that when both people are ready to give and both people are ready to serve like, like you were when you were dating, um, <laughs> it's true that at that point, there's a lot of happiness there. And, and that can stay there when Christ is in the middle. So one way that I think we stumble and we trip up ourselves is we idolize people and that means we can't love them. The other way, um, the, the word um, can mean to uh, overlook, but it can also mean to be indifferent toward or indifference. Indifference is, yeah, uh, that's what indifference is. Meh. Indifference isn't hate. I can't stand that person. No, indifference is, mm, take it or leave it. Indifference is, yeah or no, it's lukewarm. Uh, this past this this past summer, uh, man, our whole our whole country was was having a bit of a reckoning with racial uh, inequality and racial issues, and so we we held a roundtable here at City Chapel because we believe in transparency and open, and so we just began sharing different people, both on Zoom and in person, began sharing their experiences, and, and church ought to be a safe place to do that. And what I one the the one thing I shared is that what God is teaching me is that I I need to not be indifferent to the suffering of my brown and black brothers and sisters. Yeah. And this, this I think, is, a, is an issue with, with, with several white people. We, it's like, well, you, you, I need to understand your suffering in order for me to be empathetic about it. But no, you actually you don't have to agree even on the interpretation of the event to recognize the suffering of your brother and sister. And that suffering ought to be enough to prick your heart and develop compassion in your heart. But indifference is always, is always like, well, you're gonna have to prove it to me. You're gonna have to explain it to me. I'm gonna have to understand. I, but I can't, I, didn't, I haven't lived in your shoes. I haven't had your experiences. You haven't had my experiences. I cannot truly relate to you, but I can love you. And that's the key. I don't know that the American church has a race problem as much as we have an indifference problem. And that spreads across all things, both racial inequality as well as uh, financial, economic inequality. As, I mean, the, there are still homeless people in the streets because we have an indifference problem. Not because, not because we have a, a, a hate problem. I don't hate those people. I don't hate you. I don't hate homeless people. I mean, I guess some people are pretty mad at them. But anyway, you know, uh, but most Christians I know they're not like, you know, seething mad at folks. They're just, eh. 
you know, I guess they're probably, you know, if they want to be different, they ought to make different choices, I guess. You know, it's just indifference. And that indifference, man, is not a sign of having walked with Jesus. Because Jesus could easily have looked at all of us and said, well, I guess you made your bed. You should probably sleep in it. He could have looked at all of us and, and he understands, he understands much more, much more than, than, than I understand about my own life. So he understands what led to certain things and, and how I, even, even my personality has been shaped by different decisions that I've made. And so of all people, he could hold me entirely accountable for the position I find myself in and the hardships I face. And yet in the midst of all that, he doesn't do that. He has compassion on us. He looked at the multitude, scripture says, and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Well, they probably got sick because they were eating unhealthy and keeping, they weren't keeping six feet distance and they weren't wearing masks. <laughs> Not to mention their sanitary system. Do you know the sanitary system back in the day? It was sketchy. I mean, like stuff flowing through the streets. You know what I'm saying? Like they had the public toilets for them was these little uh, like, like, like tubes in the middle of the road. And you just, I don't know if this is too much for anybody, but you just squat down and you, 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 you deposit your uh, 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 waste in the, in the hole, thank you. And, and then there's a guy who works there and he's got a stick, it's almost like a broom and it's got a sponge on the end of it. You might remember this from the crucifixion. But anyway, there's a sponge on the end of it, he dips it in vinegar and, and before you get up, he scrubs your, your rear end. By the way, that's what they offered Jesus. He said he was thirsty, and they went and got one of those to offer him some vinegar water. Anyway, yeah, so it adds a little dimension to the cross for you. But, but talk about unsanitary. It's like he's wiping me, and then he's wiping the next person. He's wiping that. And so Jesus could have been like, guys, you guys, um, hmm. You're sick because you're doing dumb stuff, all right? Have you heard about germs? Do you know anything about how this works? But no, he doesn't do that. He looks at them, has compassion on them, and lets them keep using their sponges. And many of us, though, wouldn't do that. We would say, well, I mean, you, dumb choices kind of led you to that. You'll have to figure your way out of that. It's indifference. Jesus, who could be indifferent, chose not to be. He had compassion. He, he, he was moved with compassion. And gosh, that's, that's a little historical lesson for you, but a modern lesson, he's been moved in compassion in my own life. So many times I've got myself into situations and got myself into problems and did it, literally did it to myself. And he hasn't said, well, you're going to have to pay for that. You're going to feel bad for three weeks before. I'll... But he's rushed in with arms of compassion and welcomed me home. Which kind of brings me to my last way that we hate people is through unforgiveness. I think indifference can lead to unforgiveness, but it's not necessarily the same thing. Unforgiveness is where someone has done something wrong to you and you hold on to it. You hold it against them. You don't release them. You, maybe you just hope one day they'll come back and say they're sorry. That's unforgiveness. If somebody has to come back and say they're sorry, that means you haven't released them and forgiven them. You're waiting for that sorry. You're waiting for that email, that text message. You're waiting for them to realize how badly they hurt you and what all they did to you. We were sharing about this on Wednesday night. We had an awesome prayer and worship meeting, by the way, here on Wednesday night. Um, there was some weird sound issue, so we didn't go, well, we were live, and then we just cut it because it was awful. Um, and there was, it was just us in the room. And so we we're just, all right, what do you guys have? And so different people were sharing about things. And one of the things that was shared was about unforgiveness. And I said, well, that's actually what I've been reading about leading into my sermon is unforgiveness because 
because you cannot have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone and walk in the light at the same time. So this is a thermometer. Because this is indifference toward others and toward, toward this is lack of, uh, Thayer, I think it's Thayer, um, Thayer is a, he's, he's, a, he's a Greek commentator of the lexicon, and um, he, he, he translated this word to hate, um, he translated it to love less, to love less, and that's what unforgiveness is. There's some people that I love, and then there's some people I love a little less. Because, you know, they've hurt me. They've burned me. They've, 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 you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you kind of thing. Once again, this self-preservation Luciferian idea that I don't want to lay down my life for anybody. I'm going to guard myself. I'm going to protect myself. This is this, this what the snake believes. And, and, so, and so instead, though, God says uh, that, that we ought to forgive people. And this is especially true in Matthew 18, one of the classic passages where the disciples are sitting around talking, right? And um, they come to Jesus with a question, and they say, should we, um, how many times should we forgive someone uh, in a particular day, right? Uh, and uh, the, 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 the question is, should we forgive them seven times? Now, I don't know about you, but every time I've read that, I've thought, man, th these guys are really spiritual. You know, most people I know wouldn't forgive somebody twice in the same day for the same thing. Maybe not even once, right? Because fool me once, shame on, anyway, you know, shame, shame, shame. <laughs> this is the office episode. Anyway, uh, you know, I mean, this is all these TV, I don't know. But, you know, like somebody walks up to you and they slap you in the face. You know, and they're like, man, I'm so sorry. Most of us aren't going to turn the other cheek and be like, oh, I forgive you. But some of us really spiritual people maybe would. Okay, well, you had a bad day, I guess. Maybe something's going on. It's like, okay, fine, I forgive you. Right? Ten minutes later, bam. Okay, hold on a second. All right, now we're going to have to talk. No, man, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm just having a bad day. I just, you know, I'm so sorry. Okay, just don't let it happen again. Ten minutes later, bam, the other side. All right, that's it. You know what? Uh, I'm going to go to lunch. When I get back, I want you to be different. Seven times in the same day? Like, like, I, like, I don't know how the disciples came up with this. I imagine it was Peter. This isn't in the Bible, but this has to be a Peter suggestion, you know. Like, they're all sitting around, and they're like, man, you know, I know we're supposed to be forgiving people. Jesus has been talking about loving our enemies and stuff, and uh, I don't even love my mother-in-law. So I don't know how, like, like she, you know, she, she always tries to stir things up, and because and, uh, things are so different back then. It's not that way now. But back then, back in the day, mother-in-laws were a certain kind of way. And, uh, you know, John is like, I just, I, you know, I, I, I'm done. I, like, this is the third time this week that she's stepped in and messed things up. And it's like, yeah, how many times do we have to forgive these people anyway? And John's like, well, I, I think one time. I think one, you know, like, you know, once and then they're done. And then James is like, well, you know, I've, I've been walking with Jesus a little closer than you, John. I've been paying attention. I'm, I'm ready to forgive twice. And then Peter steps up. He's like, man, seven times for me. That's a number of completeness. That kind of sounds like me and my holiness. So seven times, that's how I roll. And uh, they're like, seven times, P Peter, no wonder the dude walked on water. He's ready to forgive people seven times. He's on a whole nother level. And so they're like, man, I, 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 I don't think that's necessary. Let's go to Jesus. Let's, let's sort this thing out. They bring it to Jesus, and my interpretation, my imagination is that they're feeling pretty spiritual about themselves. 
Jesus, Jesus. How many times should we, should we forgive uh, Pete's mother-in-law? Seven times, maybe? And Jesus turns to them, and he doesn't say no. He doesn't give a direct answer. Instead, he says, well, seven times 70. And they didn't have cell phones back then to work out the calculator and the math. And so I can imagine they're standing there going, seven times, so, so, so 10 times seven is 70, right? And then seven, so you carry the one, and, and it puts the two. And, and, and then Jesus, like, it's almost like he just interrupts their math, and he tells them a story. Now, I, I, find, it, I find it funny that he gave them a math problem with an actual number of how many times you ought to forgive people. But, it, but in, it, with regard to the numerology of it, it's essentially saying there is no end to your forgiveness. Because if seven is completeness, you multiply seven times ten. Ten is the number of the complete law of God. And then you multiply that by a completeness again times seven. I mean, if, 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 if there is no end to this forgiveness thing. And, and in my mind, it's not in Scripture, but I just see the, the disciples just with their jaw on the floor going, how do we do that? It's, it's kind of like when Jesus talked about marriage and he talked about his, his standard for marriage and talked about his standard really for divorce. <laughs> um, his disciples, after that talk, they said, it's better than for a man to never get married. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, go read the scripture. That's their response to the thermometer of Jesus's marriage. And Jesus didn't correct them. Jesus said, no, 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 well, I didn't mean it did that. It's not, it's not like that. Jesus said, no, you're right. It's not for everybody. He said, for the one to whom it is for, they ought to take it on. But other people, they shouldn't take it on. They're not mature enough. They're not ready to forgive that many times the same person, right? To, to, to deal with the toilet paper on backwards like every morning. They're just not ready. Or not there at all. Someone's going to use it, throw the roll away, and not replace it. They're not ready for that. <laughs> and we could go on, but I digress. Jesus was honest. He's like, no, man, this is the thermometer, and it's true. Some people are not at the place where they should do this right now. It's just honest. And I love Jesus like that because he's, he doesn't bend the rules and adjust it. He just, he just is clear, and he doesn't put weight on us. Well, you better figure it out. No. Maybe you don't need to be married right now. Maybe that's okay. Maybe God's fine with that. And so, and, so, and so Jesus is responding, though. In my mind, their mouths are on the floor. How do we forgive seven times, 70 times in a day? How does that happen? And Jesus shares a story. He shares a parable, as he loves to do, not about how to forgive people, oddly enough, or even particularly about forgiveness. The word forgiveness is never in the parable. He shares a story about a rich man who had some servants, and he decided to settle accounts. His servants owed him some money based on, I guess, years of borrowing, and he decided to settle those accounts. He needed some money. And so the rich man calls in one of his servants who owed him uh, like a couple of million dollars in today's currency, a couple of million bucks. And, and, this, and this, this guy doesn't have a couple of million dollars. I don't know how you borrow two million dollars if you're not already rich, like if you're already rolling in it and it's like, ah, two million, that's nothing. But if you're a slave and you literally don't have that, like I don't know how that happened, but somehow this, this dude borrowed $2 million. I saw, I saw a couple weeks ago, the, a, Shelby, a Shelby Cobra, 1965. 
It was one of only five made. I think it's a, called a 251. It, it's, it was Carol Shelby's own Cobra. And uh, it sold on auction uh, at the end of the deal. At the end of the day, the whole auction was $5.94 million for a 1965 car. It had been fully restored exactly like it was in 1965, $5.94 million. And I was watching this on my phone. I turned to Ro. I'm like, babe, like during this pandemic, rich, the rich are getting richer. Some people are so rich. They have literally $6 million to spend on a car that they're never going to drive. They're going to park it in, in this really fancy like garage with all this plaques and, and everything. And, and then they're going to pay somebody monthly to <clears throat> go and unscrew each bolt, you know, and, and clean it and, and oil each thing and keep it all. <clears throat> I'm like, man, like, can you imagine $6 million on an old car? Well, basically, this guy saw a Shelby Cobra. And he's like, boy, I would love a Shelby Cobra. And he borrowed millions of dollars like an idiot, he took it out probably on a wet, rainy day, wrecked it, didn't have insurance, and now he can't pay the money. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So Jesus says, this guy owes a couple million dollars. And the king, or the, 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 the rich man, says, you need to pay me right now. And uh, he says, I can't. He begins weeping. He falls on his face, you know. He's begging literally for his life, because if he cannot pay... He's going to go either to jail for the rest of his life or he's going to be sold. I think Jesus says him and his wife and children will be sold into slavery. So he's going to lose his family. He's going to lose his children and his children and his wife are going to be sold into slavery. He's going to be sold into slavery. And he begs literally for his life and for his family. And the king has compassion on him. Jesus says he has mercy on him. And the mercy in the king is stirred up by the pleading of this man and by this, his situation. And so he forgives him. He says, I will release you of this debt. You don't owe me anything. And so the man steps out of that courtroom, and then it's like act two, right? Scene two. The man's walking down the street, and he sees a fellow servant who owes him basically a couple of thousand dollars. And um, we don't know what happened with his couple. I don't know why he's borrowing thousands of dollars from his friend. I mean, maybe he bet against Tom Brady going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> he's on a different team at all. I mean, why would he go to the Super Bowl again? Oh, he loses $2,000. And so he needs to try to get his money back. He doesn't have it back. And his friend grabs him by the throat and says, you have to pay me right now or else I'm going to throw you into jail. And the man says, be patient with me. He says basically the same thing that this man just said to, to the man that he owed millions of dollars to. And instead of, of having mercy, instead of having compassion, he throws the man in jail. Well, there are other servants around watching this story unfold, and they realize how absolutely wrong this whole scene is. But it's only wrong. It's actually, it's, it's really only wrong if you know the backstory, if you know the fact that this man had just been forgiven $2 million. If this man had not been forgiven $2 million, and he's walking down the street, and he sees somebody that owes him $2,000, then it's not necessarily wrong to say, look, I need my $2,000. Like, legally, you're supposed to pay it back, right? Cool, I need it. Nothing wrong about that. What, what makes it so horrendous is the mercy that he had received, he didn't transfer on to somebody else. He didn't extend it. He received it, and then he didn't release it. And that's what makes it so evil. And Jesus said, this is exactly what my heavenly Father will do to you 
if you do not forgive one another from your heart. Because what happened is the, the, the servants told on the man who had been forgiven millions, the, the king or the, the, the owner brought him back in and said, look, I had, I had mercy on you. You should have had mercy on him. And he said, because you didn't, you now have to pay back my debt. And he, instead of selling him into slavery, he, he delivered him to the, the tormentors to be tortured until it was paid back, which is pretty much never. I don't know if you know this or not, but you don't make a lot of money getting tortured. <laughs> Last I checked, the hourly rate's not great. You don't, it, it is. It's exactly like hell. It's a picture of hell. And Jesus said, this is exactly what my Father will do to you if you do not forgive one another from your heart. Why? Because God is ruthless and evil and wants to send you to hell? No, because God has extended great mercy. And so the key, if you find yourself today being indifferent toward people, if you find yourself today having unforgiveness in your heart, the key is not just to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and say, okay, well, I'm just going to forgive people because it's tricky. It's harder than that because Jesus said, unless you forgive people from your heart, not from your mouth. If you have kids, you know that forgiveness from the mouth and forgiveness from the heart, are two different things. Say you're sorry, <laughs> right? Sorry. It doesn't do the same thing as actually being sorry, right? It's two different things. So to forgive, this is why it's so tricky because you, can, it, you, you can't have a sermon about five easy ways to forgive everybody in 30 minutes. It doesn't work that way because it's a heart issue. You have to forgive people from your heart. Well, how do I do that? That's why, I believe that's why Jesus didn't tell them how, he told them why. Jesus didn't present them a five-step or three-step process to forgiveness. He gave them a new paradigm to view their own life. Because the, the key, once again, the very key to this whole story is not what the man, not that the man threw his, his friend into jail. That wasn't the problem. The problem is that the man had received great mercy and he didn't extend great mercy. And this is, this is how then you forgive people. The way to forgive people is to truly receive great mercy. Is to truly receive great mercy. I, I, don't think, I don't think hardly anybody has a hate problem. They have a not walking in the light problem. I don't think anybody has an unkindness problem. They have a not walking in the light problem. I don't think anybody really has an unforgiveness problem. They have a not receiving mercy problem. They haven't fully receive the mercy of God. And so as I talk to my kids, uh, we, uh, we don't tell our kids, like, go tell them you're sorry, because that doesn't do anything. So we have talks with them, and we get to the heart of, of their particular issue. And by the way, a, a major issue in kids and adults is unforgiveness. They did something to me yesterday, and I haven't let go of it yet. And that comes out in conversations. So anyway, so we sit down with our kids, we talk with our kids because we want to get to the root of what's going on. And oftentimes it's something that happened like in the morning or the day before or even like a week before. Or, you know, he got this toy and I didn't get that. And so, da 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 da, -da. And, so, and so it always goes back to the, okay, so now how do you forgive from the heart? And the way, the only way that I've known to be able to help my kids forgive from the heart is begin to talk about the mercy of Jesus. Have you received the mercy of Jesus? Have you believed in the mercy of Jesus? Have you truly received? And I, I, don't, I don't mean have you gone to church, have you prayed a prayer? I mean, have you come to understand how deeply he loves you? How deeply he cares for you? Have you seen the extent of his compassion? There's an interesting story, and I don't have time to get into it. I actually had the whole thing on 
and to show up on the screen, but uh, I, I, I won't do that. Uh, there's a passage in Genesis 50, which I shared on Wednesday night. Genesis 50, I was reading through the one-year Bible, and there's this interesting, weird little part at the end of the book of Genesis where um, Jacob dies. And Jacob, of course, had his um, 12 sons of Jacob or sons of Israel. And then he had Joseph, who was uh, the, the second in command over all of Egypt. And you guys probably have heard Joseph's story. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, treated really badly, and then uh, ended up saving his brothers. He was, he was the one who welcomed them into Egypt and set them up and, and helped the whole family move to Egypt and, and have supplies and have food and everything. So it was really a great... Uh, Joseph is a beautiful picture of Jesus favored by his father, hated by his brothers, lowered into the earth, brought back into a place of salvation. There's so many parallels to Joseph's story and Jesus' story. But at the end of Joseph's story, he, his dad dies, Jacob dies, and they go bury his dad. And uh, there's this whole, like, a whole chapter, half a chapter on burying his dad, which really gets me interested. I'm like, why is the Bible talking about this burial so much? But it's because it's, it's, it's significant. Because God calls himself the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the last one that he names himself after. And so Jacob is buried. And after Jacob is buried, there's an interesting passage in verse 15 of, of chapter 50 where, um, where the, 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 the brothers of Joseph gather together and they say, now that our father is dead, Joseph may remember what we did to him and still hold a grudge. So they concocted this story. And they went to Joseph and they said, look, before dad died, dad said, you need to be sure to really forgive your brothers. All right, cool. And uh, he didn't, like, there's no record of this. They, they put this together um, because they were afraid that Joseph was still holding a grudge. And so they come to him, they're like, dad said, you need to be nice to us. And by the way, also, we're really sorry about all that stuff, lowering in the well and all that jazz, 17 years of you being, uh, you know, castrated and all the junk that we put you through. We're really sorry about that. And then they fell down. They said, we are your slaves. So we'll do whatever you want. Like, like my wife's really good at cooking. Like I can clean your house for you every week. Like, like, we'll, like, we're, like you don't have to worry about a thing. We, we are your slaves now. We're not your brothers. And it's, it's so interesting, Joseph's response. It, it, Joseph, the Bible says that Joseph wept. Why? Because he's getting free cooking for the rest of his life? <laughs> I'm thinking, well, this sounds like a pretty good deal, right? I mean, all 12 of my brothers want to take care of me. They're, they're truly sorry. This is great. No, no, because they already had a moment where they were truly sorry. Joseph is not weeping for what they said. He's weeping for what they did not say. What they did not say is, even though years ago, we don't know how long, but years ago when we came to you, you welcomed us into the palace, you said you forgave us, we never actually believed you. We thought you just wanted relationship with dad. That's why you forgave us. And now that dad's gone, we kind of figure you're going to take it out on us again. And I wonder how many times our prayer life looks a lot like that. And we, we feel like it's super spiritual. Go, oh, I'm so sorry again. And really, it's like, I already forgave you for that. Yeah, but... It's so interesting that as soon as our Jacob dies, or that thing we thought God wanted from us, as soon as we feel like we're not giving it to him, we realize that we really didn't believe in the forgiveness we had received before. We really didn't realize the depth of it. We thought he just wanted something from us. We thought he just wanted this or wanted that, but as soon as he doesn't get that, well, I guess he probably 
you know, we're going to have to repent again. We're going to have to cry again and be a slave. And, it's, and Scripture says that Joseph, instead, he spoke kindly to them. I feel like the Holy Spirit just wants to speak kindly to some people today. <laughs> I don't think God wants you to be a slave. I think he wants you to be a son. He doesn't need new brownies or new cooking. <laughs> he doesn't need somebody to dust his house or do stuff for him. He's got angels for that. He can do whatever he wants. Apparently, he can speak galaxies into existence if he wants. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need our perfect attendance record of church. He doesn't need, he doesn't need uh, our offerings. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need any of that. And, 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 and he welcomes all of it. But if it's because we really don't believe that he's forgiven us, I think he weeps over that. I think he says, you, you still don't get it. I forgave you. I released you. By the way, in the story, there's also some really good keys as to how to release people. He, he, said, he said, am I God? That's the first question. <laughs> if, you're, if you're thinking about forgiving people, ask yourself, are you God? Like, can you actually make them pay? The answer is no. <laughs> so God's the final judge. So let God be God. He says, look, I'm not God. I can't actually judge you anyway. I can't, I can't, I can't even actually release you. Only God can release your conscience but I can release you as much as I can. And so instead he says, God used what you did for good. He, he, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we see then another step in forgiveness is recognizing that there's a higher perspective than the one that I have. That just because I can't see how this could work out for good doesn't mean that God doesn't. Just because I don't know what I'm doing doesn't mean God doesn't. That my life is in his hands. And that if that person did that to me, he allowed it. And if he allowed it, he'll use it. And if he'll use it, how can I hate it? How can I hate what a very good God would use? It's a step toward forgiveness, as Joseph found. So, Father, we come to you today, and we, we just ask for you to speak kindly to us, to those watching online, to those here in the room. May the Spirit of God speak kindly. May he remind us of his mercy. May he remind us of the depth of his compassion. May he remind us of his mercy, which is new every morning. It is the mercy of God. Its mercy is not just ah, uh, withholding judgment. That's part of it, but the word mercy means compassionate action. <laughs> so God isn't just holding back hell, and that's mercy. But no, mercy is every single time he moves in our heart. Every time he speaks to us, whether it's through nature, through a loved one, or through the word of God, through a sermon, through a song, every time I feel his presence, that's his mercy. Every time I see the goodness or the, the beauty in nature, every sunrise is an expression of his mercy and his goodness. Every, every beautiful thing in creation, every beautiful thing in my life is because of his mercy. He has had compassionate action toward me. He has blessed me in ways I don't deserve to be blessed. He has poured out goodness on me in ways I don't deserve. He has been compassionately active in my life. And not only that, not only has he withheld judgment, but he's withheld uh, uh, evil from my life. He's withheld the enemy from my life. He's kept the enemy at bay. Proverbs says he stands guard in the path of the righteous, meaning before I even get there, he's already cleared out all the enemies. Before, I, before the problem even arises, he already has the solution for me. And that's his mercy. It's his compassionate action on my behalf. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy as seen most of all in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in the work on the cross. But beyond that, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I turn around and I see the mercy of God. Joseph turned around and saw mercy of God. And he extended that mercy to his brothers. Lord, may we extend mercy to those around us. First, may we truly receive it for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for joining.